Welcome to AP Psych! <laughs> okay, and welcome back to our Unit 7 review. And this is all about motivation, emotion, and personality. Are you ready, Ms. Stein? I am. Awesome. Okay, so let's start with the five theories, uh, five motivation theories, that is. Yeah, so the first one we're going to talk about is the, the evolutionary or instinct approach. And this one's a little separate from the other four approaches that we'll talk about. So we'll start just with our evolutionary approach. So the evolutionary approach, it's, I mean, just kind of how it sounds. It's about, it kind of focuses more on evolution. Um, and so it's that complex pattern of behaviors um, it's an innate, an innate, as in like within us. Um, and this theory was discounted because it didn't really explain motives. And it just says that there's instincts. So the second theory is drive reduction theory. Um, did you want to talk about this one? Or sure. Okay. So the drive reduction theory states that like we have a drive, which is a state of tension or arousal caused by a biological or physiological need. So really that means like you're hungry, you're maybe you're tired, you're thirsty. Um, and we're motivated to do something to reduce that drive. So something that's going to reduce our hunger or reduce our thirst and return our body to homeostasis. Um, that need is going to, or that drive is going to push us to behaviors. So our hunger is going to push us to eat so that we can return to homeostasis or normal. Yeah. And in our slide, slides 11 through, I think it's like 14, 15, there's some really cool examples that kind of go through the way in which that moves. I am more visual, so I like seeing that visual. So if you want to see more of that visual, I suggest you go into that as well. Our third theory is the incentive theory. And the incentive theory states that we are pulled by incentives to behave in a certain manner. So incentives like money or social approval. Um, and that motivation can come from like a reward or like an outcome or an avoidance of a punishment or an aversive stimulus. So there's positive incentives and negative incentives. So an example of a positive incentive would be you smell bread baking in the oven. You're like, oh, that smells really good. Like I'm, I'm motivated now to wait for this bread that I passed by in the bakery. Or a negative incentive would be you know you didn't study for your AP psych test um, mm -hmm. and you will not do well. So you decide to take practice tests to prepare. Um, with the incentive theory, there's also different motivators. So intrinsic and extrinsic. Um, we have a list, a little chart of different intrinsic and extrinsic motivators with different behaviors. Um, is there another one or do you want to just explain any one of these three? There's a, I mean, you can think of a whole bunch in general, you know, 
Yeah, intrinsic is like think about when we talked about intrinsic motivation,、mm-hmm. and so because that was from a previous unit before、mm-hmm. we even specifically focused on motivation, but that's something internal, something that you want to do. So one of our examples here is clean your bedroom. Um, that could be an intrinsic motivation if you like seeing it that way. If you feel more productive or feel better about your room when it's clean, extrinsic motivation for cleaning your bedroom could be getting an allowance or not getting the car taken away, or something, some punishment、um, that your parents give you, or something that they do give you when you complete that task. So that's not something that you. Internally, feel drawn to do, but some outside pressure, punishment, or reward is encouraging you to do it. Exactly. Another example:、um, if the behavior is studying for your AP Psych test,、uh, an intrinsic motivator would be wanting to learn more about. Psychology and understanding the material better, whereas an extrinsic motivator would be getting a good grade. So grades are more extrinsic than they are intrinsic. Definitely. And then our are we number four? Ah,、uh, yes. Yes. Okay. Number four is the optimum arousal theory. Oh, oh, right, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right.、Okay. So, <laughs> arousal theory says people are motivated to take actions to either increase or decrease their arousal level in order to achieve and maintain a personal optimum level of arousal. What's important there is that it's a personal level. So my height of or optimum level of arousal is not the same as Mrs. Navidad's. Is not the same as Tom Brady's or someone who climbs Mount Everest.、Mm-hmm. I do not need that level of stimulation to be motivated.、Right. Some people might. And same with low optimum level. So we all have different low optimum levels as well.、Um, So we have some examples. I'll go over intellectual.、Um, a high optimum level would be like double majoring in biology and math.、Whew. That does not sound like that's for me.、Um, but a low optimum level could be figuring it out later and not deciding on a major.、Um, and like I said, everybody's could be different. So my high optimum level could be majoring in. History, while yours would be majoring in history with a minor in psychology, right?、Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be a different example of that.、Um, another way, another thing that we need to know with the、uh, optimum arousal theory is the Yerkes-Dodson. Wow. Okay,、Let's、I don't、go. know. Why I thought that was hard because that's how I said it. Anyway, we all know that I don't. <laughs> I I just get、flowers. excited when we ended up pronouncing it the same way. I just get excited when I have to like Google how to pronounce something, and then I find the way to pronounce it. Like that brings、Uh-oh. me joy. Yeah, yeah. Like that one name. We'll say it. Well, I'm、uh, I'm not even gonna try and say no, it. No, we're not. <laughs> um, but anyway, so the Yerkes Dotson. Um, they said that the more stimulated you are, the better the performance to a certain extent. So, 
a few weeks ago for us juniors or seniors who didn't do this, um, but we did course selection for juniors. And I went around to all of my juniors in my history classes and I asked them what their schedules were looking like for next year. And some of them said, oh, well, I'm taking all academic. And even though they could be taking some AP or some honors or some DE classes, um, they chose not to. So that would be too little stimulation for them. If you have too little stimulation, you might get bored. Um, mm -hmm. Or this chart that we have here, it might make you like not super alert, like just like lethargic, I think would be a good word for it. Whereas if some of my students said, well, I'm taking all APs and all DEs next year, and I'm not going to have a study hall. I'm doing early release so I can get a part-time job. That's going to be too much. So that's going to be really high stress, really high stimulation. And that can lead to certain levels of anxiety and depression and just all around exhaustion. Um, so that's never any good. And then there's that good medium in between where you're taking the right amount of classes for you. But again, this looks different to everybody. Some students or some people can do high, what I would consider high stress and they can handle it well and that's their optimum level. Other students may thrive and do well in all academic classes and that's their optimum level. Again, that's all dependent on the person. Absolutely. And then finally, we have Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This is a very humanistic approach to look at looking at motivation and is also probably the one you've heard of if you've heard of any of these motivation theories. So basically, he says that you there is a pyramid of needs and you do not move up the pyramid until the base levels are satisfied. So we start with physiological needs like air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, and reproduction. We go up to safety needs, then love and belonging, then esteem, then self-actualization. The way I kind of like to think of this, go with the most basic. If you are drowning and don't have access to air, or if you are in the desert and don't have access to food, are you going to be worried about your job? or if people respect you at that current moment? Probably not, right? Because at that moment, main goal is I need air, mm -hmm. I need food. You're not gonna be worrying about those higher levels. Once those are satisfied, then you can go up and say, okay, now this is what I want to focus on. That makes total sense. I really like that analogy. There is a super secret sick level. <laughs> Ooh, you got to break through all the other levels to unlock this one. This is like Bowser's castle. <laughs> it really is. Um, so that is self-transcendence. And that is giving beyond oneself. This is more of like the spiritual altruism kind of level of Maslow's pyramid. Um, so that's like, that's up there. That's up there. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about our three motivations. So there's a lot of things that can motivate us. Um, some things that we're aware of, obviously, some things that we're not. Um, so 
our three motivators are hunger, belonging, and sex. So let's start with hunger. Um, I think it's going to be, yeah, I was on the right slide. Okay. So with, if I can click on the right slide. That would be really great. <laughs> okay. So with hunger, there's a few different things. Um, it's really important for us to know glucose and insulin and what their basic role is. So glucose is like the sugar. It's your body's way of saying like, Hey, um, I'm not getting enough glucose. I'm not having that chemical reaction. And there's not enough insulin being released by my pancreas. So um, I'm now hungry and I have lowered glucose. And so my brain now knows you're hungry. You better get yourself some food. Um, and then you eat and then you raise that glucose, that sugar level, and then that diminishes your hunger. Um, so I'm sure you can all think of a time when you were hungry and you ate and then you felt better like right now is every single day um so that's what that is now you know what's going on inside it's the glucose and the insulin again the insulin comes out of your pancreas you do want to know that but the glucose is like that sugar that so whenever you hear somebody say like oh my blood sugar is low like that's because you don't have enough glucose and you have lower glucose and you need something um so that happened to me the other day I like almost fell over because I was like, I wow, I don't have enough sugar in my body. And then I ate an orange and that was fine. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So our next motivator is belonging. Why are we motivated by this need to belong? Well, for evolutionary reasons. Remember, we had talked about this, at least in my class of, all right, Let's go back to earliest civilizations. Would you survive better on your own or if you were in a group? And the answer there is in a group. We want social acceptance and self-esteem. And we resist breaking social bonds, um, which is why we may feel distress at partings or homesickness. We don't really want to leave those. Yeah, exactly. And then our last motivator is sex. Um, so the desire to have, you know, experiences and mating, it sounds weird. It sounds like, <laughs> I mean, I, I recognize that humans are animals, but like, it sounds weird when it's like, oh, this is like, we're mating. And like in American English, we don't say mate, but like in England English or like Australian English, they say mate. So I feel like if we could just like adopt that word like so that when... you could call your husband your mate no so like never mind <laughs> i don't know it's just like mate feels more like animal you know like i know i guess word, you know what i mean but yeah. like if you go to england they're like hey what's up mate and it's like oh hey what's up friend you know never mind i don't know what i'm saying <laughs> anyway <laughs> okay <laughs> the, the people that you really need to know ignore me um the three people that you really need to know are alfred kinsey william masters and virginia johnson 
And if you're like me, then you completely forgot about all three of these people until you went to review. Because when I was looking at some essential knowledge guys, and I was like, oh, wow, I totally forgot about those guys. So you definitely don't want to forget about them because um, you will be seeing them. Um, but William and Matt. William and Masters, William Masters and Virginia Johnson, um, they, re this is weird, but they researched and watched 10,000 sexual cycles of more than 300 men and 300, or 300 males and 300 female volunteers. And they created this research to learn more about that motivation of sex. So they did have a very big role in this motivation. And then Alfred Kingsey, Kin Kinsey, Kinsey. <laughs> Kinsey. He created the Kinsey scale, which was a continuum for heterosexuality to homosexuality. So basically saying there are not just straight men and straight women. There are people all along the continuum. Um, this research was criticized a lot, um, but started to open the eyes, uh, people's eyes to the possibility. Exactly. And then last but not least on these day one slides for motivation are motivational conflicts. Um, just really quickly, the four that you need to know are approach approach. This is when it's like a win win situation. Avoidance avoidance when it's like choosing between two bad things or the lesser of two evils. There's approach avoidance, which is when there's a desirable and undesirable consequence. And then there's the double approach avoidance, which is when you choose between two options that have both desirable and undesirable consequences. So like making a pro con list kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's all of that. Um, we're going to take a little break here because we've been talking for a while um, and then we'll move on to day two. Okay, back to day two, emotion. Don't you love talking about your emotions, Mrs. Snyder? I do. Good. Because that's what we're here to talk about today. So let's start with, is this the right? Yep. Is this the right sticky note? Yep. Cool. All right, let's start with evolutionary theory. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a creepy picture. It is very <laughs> Okay, so Plochik. Ooh, Plochik. Plochik. I don't know. You texted me Plo. Oh, I, I said Plu. There are two O's. <laughs> two O's is ooh. Not O. I'm going to blame this Snyder. Oh, I'm going to blame your kindergarten teacher. Miss <laughs> Cha did a fabulous job teaching me how to read. She just didn't teach me how to pronunciate. Well, it's... <laughs> anyway. Just for the record, pulling up. Plu. P-L-O-O. the receipts, you guys. I can't stand it. I said Plu. Watch, we're going to Google it after and it's going to be Plochick. You know what? Can you talk about his evolutionary theory while I Google really fast? Yeah. So, whatever. It says emotions helped early humans survive. Um, and he says that there are eight basic emotions and all other emotions are a combination of these. 
like we talked about in the next ones with Carol Izzard. Um, Carol has 10 basic emotions. And then we have Paul Ekman, who has six basic emotions and all other are the combination of these. So each of these psychologists had different numbers of emotions. You, I told my students they did not need to know the exact. <laughs> Wonderful. So in agreement, you do not need to know the exact emotions um, that were included in this, but just know that they each had different levels or different numbers of basic emotions and believe that all other emotions combined them. Yeah, I think that wheel kind of confused us too, because there's a lot going on in that. Um, so it's really just important to like get the basic understanding, I think, of what those emotions are. Um, and are you ready to hear? I am ready. Platic. We were both wrong. Do it again. Platic. Platic. I don't trust it. I don't either. <laughs> fine whatever whatever you want however you're gonna remember it that's yeah. my final you consensus. decide <laughs> you get to decide oh man okay so um emotional responses now before we get into some of the other theories um it's really important to understand the four parts to an emotional response because they're all going to be used in the next few theories that we're going to talk about and with emotional response they involve stimulus so something has to stimulate and like start this reaction there's a physical reaction either physiological arousal um, or an expressive behavior and then sometimes there's cognition some of these theories they don't include any cognition um, but cognition or that conscious kind of thinking and then emotion. So it's important to understand that they each have in some way, all four of those, again, some of them don't include cognition, but let's move on to our first theory, the James Lang theory. Now, the James Lang theory created by William James and Carl Lang, this stimulate or the stimulus causes a physical reaction and the mind interprets the arousal and that causes the emotion. So it's kind of like a one-way ticket to the emotion. You have that physical reaction first and then you have that emotion. We use an example of a bear for most of these. And so when you see a bear, that's the stimulus. And then your heart rate goes up and you start sweating and you're like, okay, I'm scared. That's your emotion. You're fearful because you see a bear. There's no cognition involved with the James Lang theory. You're not thinking about like, why am I afraid of this bear? Or what is this feeling that I'm feeling? because I see a bear. Um, it's just, oh gosh, that's terrifying. I'm scared. So the Cannon-Bard theory is next. This is Walter Cannon and Philip Bard. And what they say is that the physical reaction is not distinct enough for the mind to interpret. So same thing, if we saw that bear, um, it's our body's not going to be able to just feel the uh, heart rate grow up and the sweating um, and know the emotion. So what Ken and Bard say is that the physical reaction and the emotion are happening at the same 
time. So it's done automatically. Again here, there's no explicit conscious uh, cognition involved. You're not actively thinking through. Um, it's just going to all take place at the same time. So you see the bear, heart rate goes up, starts sweating instead of thinking about, or instead of that passing through another stage first to the emotion, emotion is going to come with it at the same time. Mm -hmm. Up next, we have the two-factor theory. I'm pretty sure on our test, it's only listed as the two-factor theory. Yes. But it's important to know who created the two-factor theory. Um, so Stanley Schachter. Yes. I feel like that was easy. And Jerome Singer, they created the two-factor theory. Um, and they said that it's similar to the James Lang theory. Um, or I'm sorry. Yeah, in the physical reaction sense. But it's also similar to the Cannon-Bard theory um, because the James Lang theory is too simplistic. And that's so let me just explain the theory. Why don't we just do that? Let's do that. Um, so with the two-factor theory, the stimulus causes a physical arousal first. So that's the first part in the two factors, right? The stimulus causes that physical arousal first. And then the mind is cognitively interpreting the cause of that arousal. So what your, your body or your mind is going through schema, like what is this um and it determines which emotion so then you feel that emotion so the arousal fuels the emotion and then the cognition channels it so if we go back to our bear the stimulus is the bear the physical reaction is your heart racing and then that cognition is your mind is interpreting like this is a response because i'm afraid or maybe I'm excited, or why is why is this physical reaction happening? And then you determine going after going through that cognition phase, like, yes, I am in fact afraid of what this bear could do to me. And so then you feel that fear of emotion. So it's kind of like more of a cause and effect. And you use cognition with the two-factor theory. That's that second part. Um, and you think about what it is that like that physical reaction that you're feeling right and this is the so this is the first theory where you're actually thinking through what is the physiological response mm -hmm. now i really liked this example mm -hmm. um some of my students you know it, it takes a second it takes getting to the second one to know why we're talking about accidentally falling off a cliff yes. um but also think about have you ever been I know you hate this. That's why I'm going to bring it up. Leaning back in your chair and you start to fall. Um, so think of that like any falling sensation. Mm -hmm. Your brain's going to interpret that is this response because of fear. You're going to have that same stomach drop feeling. That means fear because you're about to fall. When on the other hand, if you get that stomach drop feeling because of skydiving, or maybe because you just saw your crush down the hallway, that's going to be because of excitement. So that's why this two-factor theory, the second factor of thinking through what does this mean is uh, important to this theory. Mm -hmm. Is the same physiological reactions can mean different emotions. Yes. Number four. Back to you, Mrs. Navidad. <laughs> you <laughs> Robbie and Joey. 
Um, okay, super English way of pronouncing this man's last name is going to be Zajonk, which I'm pretty sure there's a link to a YouTube video that pronounces it much more eloquently than Zayons. I just did. Um, but I just call him Robbie. I appreciate it. So, and then Joseph Ledo, which sounds like Leda, um, <laughs> but I just call him Joey. So, <laughs> Leda, obviously. Obviously. Anyway, so they have this high road and low road. I get theory, I guess is the right yeah. word, theory. Um, and they say that high road is where most emotions lay. It's, you know, you have your senses. They go through the thalamus and the cortex and the amygdala. And it's, you know, pretty normal. And then low road is where the fear resides. So again, you go through senses, thalamus, and you skip over the cortex, and then you go straight to the amygdala. And it bypasses cognition through that cortex, so it allows for a faster reaction. So with high road and low road, it's a difference of, do you need to think about what emotion it is or whatever it is that you're sensing and what emotion you're going through? Or are you going through low road and you need to react quickly that you can't even think about it? So I'm going to go back to skydiving and falling off a cliff, for example. Um, if you're falling off a cliff and you did not mean to, you you know, nobody has to tell you like, oh, are do you need to think about being scared? Probably not. That's going to be low road. You already know that you're scared. But if you're skydiving... And you're you, like, you purposefully decided to jump out of a moving plane with a parachute on. And I don't understand that. Then you're going to be thinking about, you know, like, oh, I'm not afraid. Like, I'm not fearful. Like, this is more enjoyable. And you're, you're thinking that you're going through that cognition phase. And then finally, we have Lazarus. Yes. See, I knew this one. <laughs> Richard Lazarus, his was in react in a reaction to Robbie and Joey. Nice. Um, so he says that emo an emotional response is done without conscious awareness, but there is cognitive appraisal. So even if you have that low road emotion of the fear, basically you go back and assess the situation. So if you immediately were like, I'm afraid you still have, after that knee-jerk reaction, you have time to go back and say, am I really afraid or is this good? Maybe if it's a like a sadness or happiness, you still can stop and go back and figure it out. This will tell you whether you will continue feeling that emotion or whether you will stop. Exactly. Okay, we're having some technical difficulties, so I'm just going to go over gas really fast or um, oh gosh, what is, uh, general adaptation syndrome um, really fast um, on my own, and then um, we'll move on from there. So the gas or general adaptation syndrome or general adaptation theory was created by Hans Seeley, and he said that when we are exposed to certain stressors, we go through various phases or stages. Um, 
through the general adaptation syndrome. So your body copes well with temporary stress, but long-term damage to the body can be seen if you have even short amount of stress, um, but even long bouts of stress as well. Um, so there's three different phases. This is not a case of everybody goes to phase two or three. I think everybody, you know, kind of has phase one for sure and experiences phase two, but you definitely never want phase three to be the goal. So let's talk about gas phase one, that alarm reaction when your sympathetic nervous system is activated. This is the fight or flight response. You're either going to go and fight in whatever situation, whatever stimulus you face, or you're going to flight and run away. Um, you have short bursts of energy and this upsets your homeostasis. So it kind of upsets that balance, that norm that you have. Now phase two is resistance. Your sympathetic nervous system is still working, but at this point it's being overworked and your body is being drained of energy and hormones and neurotransmitters. So this is where you're starting to feel a little more like, okay, I cannot sustain this for much longer because if you do, then you will move into phase three, which is exhaustion. And this is not the kind of exhaustion that you have at the end of a long day and you're like, oh, I'm exhausted. This is much more of a, like your resources, mental and physical resources are completely drained. Um, it can lead to tissue damage, ulcers, reduced to resistance to re diseases. So your immune system becomes weakened. Um, it can lead to heart problems and uh, heart health and it can eventually lead to death. So you never want to get to this kind of exhaustion. Um, there are different coping strategies that we talked about in our slides. So go ahead and just look over them. Problem-focused coping and emotion-focused coping are the two methods. Um, know them for the test, generally what they are, um, but also, you know, self-care is good, so you should use them in your own lives as well. Okay, and we are back for day three. Ooh. Oh boy. Ooh, that's our not favorite. No, we had different reactions there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess we'll find out. So let's just start with personality and then we'll get into psychodynamic theory. Um, so the background with personality. It's generally accepted that personality is formed in our early childhood. There's a nature and nurture component. Of course, we've been talking about this for like the whole entire year. Yep. So nature is going to say that our genetics determine our behavior and personality is fixed, whereas nurture is going to say that our environment and upbringing combined with our experiences will determine our behavior. Now, this kind of goes into heritability, which is like, what do we inherit, right? Um, and it, with personality and heritability, it does not indicate what proportion of a trait is determined by nature or nurture, and it does not reflect the extent to which traits are passed down from parents to children. But what heritability does do, and this is important, 
it indicates the variability in the trait in a population that is due to genetic differences among people. So in our slides, we had a blue box. And I think what's in the blue box is more important than like thinking specifically what's what we inherit and what we like have a trait of, right? So in this blue box, it talks about how heritability is a measurement of how much the difference or variations are in people's DNA that can explain the differences or variations in their traits. So basically, how much does DNA determine what your trait is versus like what it doesn't determine. So um, some examples that we saw, again, I, I don't think knowing these specific examples is really going to be a huge benefit, um, but eye color we inherit, mm -hmm. right? That is passed down through genetics. Um, learning the your first language that's spoken at home is not passed down through genetics, right? That is something that you learn. But there is like a middle area, a gray area that some of it can be a part of what you inherit. And some of it might just be a trait that we learned from the outside world. So for example, um, being extroverted, maybe one of your parents is an extrovert, right? Like what my dad is very extroverted. My mom is very introverted and I'm somehow in the middle. So some of that could be from genetics. Other parts of that could be just from watching my parents, one being very extroverted, one being very introverted. So there's a nature and nurture component to it. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Awesome. She's also, for the record, explaining this to me because as my students know, as soon as we got here in the notes, I was like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, that's the only way that I can really describe it. Because there are other things in here, like slide 10 and 11. Well, I already went over extroversion, but um, conscientiousness and handedness. I don't think conscientiousness was a very good example here. Um, no. So I kind of, I like this slide on, or this example on slide 12. The big five personality traits, those are the things that are going to be like in the middle. Um, other things that are kind of in the middle, that's not a big five personality trait, is migraines. So my husband and my mother-in-law, for example, they both get migraines all the time. That's probably something that he got from his mom. And the outside world and different experiences that they've had, like when the weather changes, then they're going to get migraines more often. So like yesterday that's was awful. not a good day. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, or like even things like anxiety or depression, those would be more in the middle. Like sometimes it can get passed down through what you inherit. And sometimes it's just like this world is very stressful and you develop anxiety, right? So that's how I understand it. I'm glad that that makes sense. It does. Okay. Um, so now we get to go into our buddy Freud and his psychodynamic theory. This is all you because I just talked about it. I knew you did that. That was so purposeful. No, it's not. Oh. So it's all about the unconscious with Freud. All about that below our level of understanding or below our level of like processing. Um, so he also says we have aggressive and sexual impulses that fight to come out of that uh, unconscious 
and must be restrained. How this comes together is with the interaction of our three systems of the id, the ego, and the superego. So the id is that pleasure principle. This is completely below the surface, almost completely unconscious to us. But this one is the, the id is the primal pleasure-seeking portion, and it wants what it wants now. This is immediate gratification. This is like that devil on your shoulder saying, do it, do it, do it. The superego is the angel on your shoulder. They're the perfection principle. This is the conscience. This is um, using socialization and guilt to restrain the id. So again, this is mostly happening unconsciously. So your id and superego are fighting below what you're actively processing. Um, so it's not necessarily like you saying, oh, I really want ice cream right now. And then someone like the other side of your brain being like, no, it's not good for you. It's all happening below. Um, but the superego is our moral compass. This is what's going to try and point us in the right direction, have us make good choices. So when we get to the conscious portion uh, above the fighting of these two, that is the ego. The ego listens to both the id and the superego and operates in reality. So this is basically your personality that's coming forward and the actions that you do. Um, and this, the ego functions on delayed gratification. So it takes that id um, idea of I want it now and can delay that, which is an important skill and tool for us to have. So there's a few different ways because you described it with the angel and the devil on one shoulder. I think we can all like imagine that because we've all probably seen a cartoon with that. Um, Emperor's New Groove, you know, has that scene with Kronk. SpongeBob. Um, SpongeBob. I mean, cartoons all the time, all the right? Time. Um, but another way that you can think about it too is like, and um, Mr. Waters was actually talking about it the other day and I was like, Oh my gosh, Batman. So Batman oh is the id, you know, he's like getting out, like doing all the, the bad things, even though he's helping people, he's doing like all the bad things, like, and then um, Bruce, right, it's Bruce Wayne with Batman. Okay, mm -hmm. sorry, I'm a Marvel person. Uh, but Bruce Wayne is the ego, right? Because he, like, that's what you see all the time does whatever bruce wayne with alfred is the super ego because they do all the good things together i really like that yeah. what, a, what a topical relevant example yeah. he did a much yeah. better job of explaining it than i just did because he knows more about it but yeah. i was like wow or like you could even think of spider-man like toby mcguire spider-man when he becomes venom that's super ego or i'm sorry that's it, it. And then Spider-Man is super ego, and then Tobey Maguire is just ego. Peter Parker. Peter Parker, sorry. <laughs> I was just thinking fully Tobey Maguire. No, I'm, I'm anyway. with you. So a healthy person has a balance among all three. It's not yeah. divided like Batman or Spider-Man. Yeah. I, I think we, especially with Robert Pattinson's Batman, you can see that they're not necessarily a healthy person. I did not watch that yet. I didn't either. I was going to oh, ask you if you wanted to see it, but then you said you're a Marvel person. So. No, I mean, I like 
that man. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, just, I just really like Christian Bale as Batman. I can't see anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like yeah, yeah. Keaton and Michael Keaton. Like those are my Batmans. Okay, but this one seems. Oh yeah, no, I totally like agree. a whole new. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> so development of personality for Freud happens over time, and we progress through five stages. For Freud, these are his psychosexual stages based on erogenous zones. So which zone are we focusing on to get pleasure from from the id and an erogenous zone i know my students have this question (laughs) it's a pleasure sensitive area of the body so there are various erogenous zones thankfully we don't have to talk about all of them um so we're just going to go through the ones that are important for these psychosexual stages And remember, the mnemonic for this is only adults play love games. Um, The first letter being each of them. So the first stage is oral. This involves infants taking pleasure from oral stimulation. So think like you always have a binky. You're sucking on things or like, do they call it teething with kids? Or is it? Yeah, because like their teeth are growing. Your teeth are growing. It sounds like a dog thing though. I don't know. We don't have kids. (laughs) (laughs) not a mom so that's the uh they chew they suck on things so the erogenous zone here is the mouth or the lips Mm -hmm. fixation on the oral stage could be caused by overfeeding or underfeeding and the results if you get stuck in this stage if you get a fixation in this stage so you like to talk eat chew gum smoke you still want to have things around that mouth and lips Mm -hmm. The next stage, oh, I see what you did there. Oh, you're so oh. funny. <laughs> <laughs> the next stage is the A in only adults play love games is the anal stage. This happens from about a year and a half to three years old. And this is about the time where children start to potty train. That usually happens around two, I think. Um, but children take pleasure in learning to control bowel movements. And so this happens in the anal region. And if you, with with children learning how to deal with learning how to control these bowel movements, if you get fixated in this, maybe because you get delayed gratification or you get instant gratification, I guess, depending on your gut (laughs) and gut health um, and how much fiber you're getting, um, you get delayed or instant gratification. And if you get stuck and fixated in this stage, then you could have control issues. So wanting to be able to control that sense of gratification would be what you get fixated on. See, really, I was helping you. (laughs) Possibly. Because the next stage is our phallic stage. And this is when the erogenous zone moves to the genital area and sexual identification as male or female starts to form by observing your parents. And something that really started to trip us up is the fact that this is happening from three to six years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, But remember with Freud, this is all happening at the unconscious level. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to see a three-year-old walking around saying this is what they're doing but it just is happening. Uh, The focus here is coping with the unconscious sexual. (laughs) I forgot. (laughs) 
Okay, the focus here is coping with the unconscious sexual feelings for your parent of the opposite sex. <laughs> and so this plays into the Oedipus complex, which we'll talk about in a second. But just to add to what you say, because you're right, it is weird. Like, why is this happening for you? six-year-olds this is about the time where you realize especially if you have a sibling of the opposite sex like mm, they're different than we're I am. not <laughs> so that's usually around the time that that happens um or when you kind of start to realize like oh there are different bathrooms and I go into one specific you know what I mean like you you realize that there are like I don't know some things are different between different people yeah so that's what happens in the phallic stage um so moving on within this stage that oedipus complex that i was talking about and then the electra complex which is going to be the opposite the oedipus complex is when a son has an unconscious sexual feeling for their mother and may become jealous of the father which can lead to conflict or hate now moving into the next phase of this complex would be castration anxiety where the son fears that the father will discover his lust for mom and the father will punish by castrating him and if you don't know what castration is don't google it that's all i have to say that would be please weird. not on your school laptop or ever i don't want to gavel no gavels. <laughs> no gavels um and then identification is this last kind of step the son decides to mimic the father and hope to gain favor for the father so that they don't get castrated um kind of like if you can't beat them join them and so that's how the super ego develops for males right now the electra complex was not proposed by freud a thing to keep in mind with freud um, he did not it's not that he just didn't like women mm -hmm. he did not study them right so that's why he's not going to have anything about daughters mm -hmm. or how females mature so it takes another psychologist coming in and saying oh daughters also go through this process um and that's carl jung uh that says daughters have an unconscious sexual feeling for their father and become jealous of the mother so of the mother so same thing as the oedipus complex just from a female point of view but with freud he said basically the only thing was that daughters have have penis envy uh, because why would you not want to be a male uh and daughters discover differences between when they discovered the differences between males and females the females feel deprived without this and so that manifests itself as a desire to have children exactly so again i know that happens at according to freud at a young age but this is also the age especially if you have that sibling of the opposite sex then you kind of start to realize like things are different between us you know mm -hmm. so um now the last stage Nope. Nope, it's not. Gosh darn it. The second to last <laughs> The love and only adults play love games is the latency stage. And this happens from six years to the onset of puberty. 
And this is when fixations and sexual feelings remain hidden. Um, the erogenous zone is again in the genitals and the focus is feelings of guilt and shame about sex and decrease in thoughts and interest in sex can occur in the latency stage. Which I said that if you grew up Catholic, that stage never ends. Yes. Uh, you are always feeling guilty. The Catholic guilt. The Catholic guilt. Uh, and then finally, the genital stage, which is puberty onward. Erogenous zone is still genitals. The focus here is that the Oedipal and Electra conflicts reappear, but you overcome those, yay, by choice of a potential mate. And the uh, sexual pleasure now comes from actual sexual behavior with those uh, potential mates instead of uh, your parents. That's probably better. <laughs> probably probably a, a good uh, evolution there. For sure. Now, we already talked about how there's some issues with Freud. Um, one big one being that, um, again, like you just said, not necessarily a negative view on women, but he definitely didn't study women. So it's kind of, you know, it one-sided or biased. Um, yes. But it's important to study because a lot of people expanded upon it. And so it's like that foundation in psych. From there, we got those people that expanded on it are called neo-Freudian psychologists. And they agree that childhood is important for personality formation and that most, much of our personality formation is happening at the unconscious level. But instead of sexual conflicts, they the neo-Freudians really focus on more social conflicts. So like peer influence mm -hmm. um, and how that is impacting your personality, not the the sexual conflicts exactly so our first one is carl jung and he created the collective unconscious and this is the idea of like being filled with archetypes um we have a shared inherent reservoir of memory traces from our history um and these archetypes of good and evil and it kind of defines like what quote unquote man is or what people are, right? Mm -hmm. um, so he also has the three separations mm -hmm. of ourself into the persona, the self, and the shadow. The persona is your personality or mask that you present to others. It's not really your true self, but it's how you want to be seen. The self is your true personality. Uh, and the self and persona can be very different. And then that shadow is similar to the id. This is the dark side of your personality. Uh, so similar to how Freud divided things, um, but different. <laughs> I had a better way to put that and lost it. It's okay. Uh we're going to move on to Alfred Adler, um, and he said that social tensions are crucial for personality formation. Um, so again, focusing on social interaction, um, and he argues that we constantly strive for feelings of superiority. Um, and with this comes like the birth order, right? Um, so not necessarily like all of these things might may or may not describe you in your birth order. Um, but 
it's going back to what he said with striving for feeling superior. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if you want to add anything onto that. No. Okay. Nope. Um, do you think that they need to memorize all the different characteristics of each no. bird order? Okay. <laughs> no, I would just know that Alfred Adler is the one who studied yeah. birth order. Yeah. Um, and that Mrs. Navidad and Mr. Styles are only children. Just okay, but he acts more like an only, he only child than I do. He does. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Karen Horney. Best name for a critic of Freud especially in his views of women comes around. Um, but she goes exact opposite direction. She says environmental and social situations and relationships shape personality. That's all good. But she's going to say, yeah, women are not envious of men. Men actually have womb envy and are jealous of women because they, uh, men cannot reproduce. Uh, so she's just, again, this is something that comes, expands from Freud, gives us another perspective, uh, whether it has its own errors in itself or not. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking, well, I've been thinking about this for a while, but this is, I feel like, important to point out. A lot of these people, this is a long time ago, yes. right? The idea of, I mean, the LGBTQ plus community wasn't even... A thing at the time so no. like they're very you know one or the other so that's important to point out too this is like history psychology um so if you're kind of stuck with that just remember like this is old psychology yes know? um before experiments before proving cause and effect these were all theories right that were put out um and yes, yeah, very old-timey. Yeah, so if you're still stuck on that, just remember this is, like, history. Somebody actually said that, like, I feel like we're back in history class, but we're talking about psychology. And it's like, that's kind of what this is. Kind of, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, do we want to talk about defense mechanisms super quickly? Yes, I would review the general defense mechanisms. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of them you either use or see mm -hmm. on a pretty pretty regular basis. So it's not anything surprising. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, this is the way Freud explained it is that we use these defense mechanisms um, from the ego to defend against the demands of the id and superego. Mm -hmm. So it's happening at an unconscious level. And with some of the examples like with compensation or displacement, I would agree that that's happening at an unconscious level. You don't necessarily know, like, oh, I'm angry at uh, my roommate, but I'm going to take it out on Mrs. Navidad today. Uh, but even projection, too. Even say. projection, yes, yeah. uh, some of them. But think like with repression, I don't know that you always, that's always unconscious. Sometimes I think you acknowledge, hey, this is a really tough thing i don't want to deal with it so i'm gonna push it down right yeah now. it's almost like avoidance yes which is not on here but it's similar to repression yeah i totally agree okay. awesome so that is day three um we're gonna break up day days four five and six because they are shorter so we're just gonna do them individually um but that's what's coming up next okay see ya see ya <laughs>
Okay, we are going to break this up into two parts because it's going to get really long. Um, so this is part one going through days one through three, and then part two is going to go through four through six. So stay tuned.